Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would now grip our hearts with your word. And Lord, we pray that by your spirit, you would come among us and convince us that the scriptures communicate your truth to us. And Lord, we pray that this truth would so constrain us that we are more drawn to the scriptures than to Facebook or Twitter or Instagram. We pray, Lord, that you would make us more consistently in your word than we are on social media. And we pray, Lord, that you would so work among us that we would see not only our immediate family but our church family as the group of people with whom we are to walk and strive and and work for the kingdom. And Lord, we pray that you would help us to, to set our hearts on things above, where Christ, who is our life, is seated at your right hand. Lord, we pray that you would teach us to love what you love, to hate what you hate, to value what you value. And we ask that you would do much of this, more of it than we would expect through this passage that's before us today. Lord, we pray that you would deliver us from the temptations of our culture. We pray that you would deliver us from the vain philosophies and the empty deceits of our culture. And Lord, we ask that you would help us to build our lives on the rock, on Christ and on his word. Make us those who believe the promises and cling to them and live for them. And Father, I pray that, that no one in this room would fail to hear from you the words, well done, good and faithful servant. So Lord, we need you this morning. We need you to do more than I could ever accomplish through my words or my thinking we need you to do what only you can do by your word. As we said in our, in our call to worship this morning, remember your promise to your servant by which you have given me life. Lord, do it, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. I would invite you to open in the Bible to Genesis 48. And we'll be looking this morning at this passage. And before we dive into the text to see what's happening in Genesis 48, I want to uh, just briefly overview what happens here, and then I want to think with you about why it is significant in the context of Genesis, and a little bit about why it doesn't seem, or it wouldn't seem, significant to us given where we are today in this cultural moment and with our culture's way of looking at things. So, it, you know, it's providential this morning. It, it's, it's, it's a blessed providence that this morning we had a men's Sunday school class on self-control and we had a women's Sunday school class on women thriving in the local church as women. It was perfectly planned. We couldn't have planned it better, but it was perfectly planned by the divine author of these things. Because what we're going to see in Genesis 48 pertains to family. What's going to happen in this chapter is Joseph is going to bring his two sons to his aged father who is about to die, to Jacob. And Jacob is going to adopt Joseph's oldest two sons as his own. And then he's going to bless them. And from our culture, from our culture's perspective, you know... There, there have been many times in my life over the course of the years that I've read a passage like this in the Bible, and then I've, I've sort of sat back and thought to myself, you know, the novels that I read are so interesting. And the, sometimes the, the philosophical discussions that you might read in, in Plato or something like that are so gripping and so enthralling. Why would God inspire Moses to put a chapter like this in the Bible? An old man adopts these two kids 
and then blesses them and that's it? Why, why is this here and why is it important? And the reason I'm asking those questions across the course of my life about the Bible is because I don't value what the Bible values. And what we want to do is we want to come to understand why is it that Moses valued this chapter? And how do I reshape my perspective so that I value this material more than I might value the things that would make sense and that would resonate in our culture? So um, the first thing I want to say, or I want to draw your attention to, is this be fruitful and multiply motif that has started from Genesis 1 and just continued right through the book of Genesis. So I would invite you to, to turn back to Genesis 1.28 with me and look at the first thing that happens when God makes them male and female. Genesis 1.27, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And this is one of those moments when you think to yourself, okay, God just created humanity. There they are, man and woman. Whatever comes next is going to be profoundly significant, right? This is going to be a really important statement that comes next. Look at the next words in verse 28. And God blessed them. Every time I read that, I, I, I love it anew. Because again and again it says to us that God is not creating things that he's mad at. It's not like those ancient Near Eastern gods who create human beings and then the hum as slaves and then they make too much noise and so they, they send a flood to wipe them out. That, that is not the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible makes man and woman and then he blesses them and then look at the next words. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And just to reiterate, what God wants is for those who bear his image to take his character into every corner of creation so that every aspect of the world that God has made is ruled over by those who bear the image and likeness of God, those who bring God's character to bear in all creation so that God's glory covers the dry lands as the waters cover the sea. That's what he's after. And instead of doing that, in Genesis 6, God sees that the world has, fill, has been filled with violence in 6.11, and so he sends the flood. But when Noah gets off the boat, Genesis 9.1, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. The flood has not altered God's purpose. He still wants the world filled with his glory, and he wants it done as Noah is fruitful and multiply, 9.7. And you, be fruitful and multiply, increase greatly on the earth and multiply in it. We next see this language in Genesis 17, verse 6, where the Lord promises Abraham, which this is one of those, one of those things that's so surprising about the Bible, so surprising about God. God wants his people to be fruitful and multiply. And so what he does is he picks a man who can't have children to accomplish this. This, this should be encouraging to us every time we encounter it. Abra Abraham's wife is barren. She can have no children. Abraham is old. And Genesis 17, 6, the Lord says to Abraham, I will make you exceedingly fruitful. So the Lord is going to multiply the offspring of Abraham. And then after, after calling Abraham to offer up Isaac, again in 22, 17, the Lord says to uh, Abraham, I will surely bless you, and I will surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and as the sand that is on the seashore. And then as we continue through, it goes from Abraham to Isaac. The Lord says to Isaac in Genesis 26, verse 22, uh, we read here that Isaac uh, moved from there and dug another well, and they did not quarrel. So he called its name Rehoboth, saying, for now... The Lord has made room for us, and we shall be fruitful in the land. And then a few verses later, in verse 24, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am the God of Abraham, your father. Fear not, for I am with you and will bless you and multiply your offspring. So uh, Abraham and now Isaac are being fruitful and multiplying. As Isaac blesses Jacob, as he sends him off, he says to him in Genesis 28, 3 and 4, God Almighty bless you. 
and make you fruitful and multiply you, that you may become a company of peoples. May, may he give the blessing of Abraham to you and to your offspring with you. And then again, at the end of, at the, end of the narrative about Isaac in uh, Genesis 35 verse 11, we again read how the Lord appears to Isaac I'm sorry, not Isaac, Jacob. And God said to him in Genesis 35, 11, I am God Almighty, be fruitful and multiply. So to, to situate this within the context of the book of Genesis, uh, the man and the woman have defiled creation by means of their sin. Adam and Eve did. And so they were driven out of God's presence. And yet, even though they had nothing, they had no right to expect anything but death, God's word to them was a word about the seed of the woman, which communicated to them that this child born to them would be the source of hope. Okay, so, so the, the warning is, in the day you eat of the tree, you will surely die. And then they eat of the tree. They're clearly expecting to die because they've, they've covered themselves. They've hidden from God. And then as God is cursing the serpent, he says to the serpent, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed or offspring and her seed. And, and now the woman knows we're not going over to the serpent's side. We're going to be on God's side at enmity with the serpent. And our offspring is going to continue the battle against the serpent. And then the Lord says, and he, the male offspring of the woman, will crush the serpent's head as he incurs an injury to his heel. Which means that life and hope and salvation and redemption, everything, everything depends on the seed of the woman in Genesis 3.15. Which is to say, everything depends upon the man and the woman obeying what God said in Genesis 1.28 and being fruitful and multiplying. And then across the book of Genesis, this is reiterated as the line of descent is faithfully recorded and, and the, the, the line of descent is traced down to where we are now to Jacob and his children. All this to say marriage and family are, are going to be achieved in the book of Genesis through I'm sorry, let me back that up. Sorry, I got, my, I got my wording wrong here. It's not marriage and family that are going to be achieved. It's salvation. Salvation and God's purposes, that's what I meant to say, will be achieved in the book of Genesis through marriage and childbirth. Through marriage and childbirth in the book of Genesis, God is going to achieve his purposes. That's why this narrative in Genesis 48 is so significant. Well, why do we have a, a difficult time with these kinds of ideas in our culture? We have a difficult time with, with seeing the importance of Genesis 48, in which uh, Jacob, old man Jacob, is going to adopt these two sons of Joseph and then bless them. We have a difficult time with this in our culture because we don't value marriage and childbirth. And, and there are many causes for this. There are many... Uh, forces that result in this that bring about a situation in which, in which, for instance, men think that their influence is to be found online, on Twitter, or on Facebook, or on Instagram, and they don't realize that, that the most lasting influence they can have is through their own children. And women think that they can change the world by doing something other than having children and then raising up godly offspring. Now, I'm not, I'm not saying that this is the, these are the only things that we ever commit ourselves to, okay? But I do think that we need to rightly order our estimation of the importance of these things. And we need to see the way that the scriptures clearly communicate that that salvation is going to come through marriage and family. And then we need to see, and we'll get to this as we continue, how these things continue into the new covenant situation. Um, in, in our culture, we are influenced by those who have 
who have bought into ideas like this. I'm, I'm going to read uh, a, a little bit here this morning from Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And as Truman discusses these, these poets who have influenced the way that things go in our culture, here, here's what he says, and, and I think that this is so profound, and, and you'll see the way it re resonates with so much going on in our world. He, he writes, he's writing about Percy Bysshe Shelley, that, that old English poet, but he says uh, about his views, the destruction of marriage, of the sexual codes that justify it, and of the institutions that enforce and police it is therefore central to the liberation of humanity and to the cause of justice. Now, here's what, he, here's what he's saying. What he's saying is, if people are going to be free, if they're going to be liberated, and if justice, if the cause of justice is going to be achieved, well, then we've got to do away with marriage. We've got to do away with marriage because it's a source of oppression, and the sexual codes further that, the, the sexual co codes that make uh, marriage central to humanity, th those are just oppressive. We've got to do away with all of those. And, and the institutions that enforce and police marriage, those are also destructive. All of that has to be eradicated if people are going to be liberated and if justice is going to be achieved. And we have in our culture today organizations, prominent organizations that are heralded by everything from the NBA to the MLB to uh, major corporations all across our culture that, that have as one of their stated, stated purposes the, the eradication of the nuclear family. That's the world that we live in. And it's not just those people that articulate it directly that say we're trying to destroy the nuclear family. Think about the entertainment industry and what it does, what it celebrates, what it promotes, and what it what, it, what affections and appetites it cultivates. The entertainment industry does not cause people to walk out of the movie theater thinking, wow, marriage is awesome. Monogamy is awesome. A husband's devotion to his wife and self-sacrificial love for her is, is noble. And, and a wife's submission to her husband and embrace of her, her roles of bearing children and raising those children. What a, what a magnificent and upright and, and lasting influence she'll have. What a great thing for her to devote her. No, we don't, we don't come out of the movie theater think, thinking those things. We probably come out of the movie theater, unless we're vigilant to take every thought captive to the knowledge of Christ, we might come out thinking, you know, adultery looks like fun. Sexual immorality looks like those people engaged in that. They're, they're the ones who are actually living the good life. And, and people that, that are stirring these things up and indulging themselves in these things, those look like, they, they look like they're living the kind of life I'd like to live. That's what our culture does to us. And so, again, before, just to, just to dwell on this a moment more before we dive into the text... Uh, I want to I read to you something that Carl Truman says about death works. And, and he defines a death work as something that represents an attack on established um, cultural um, uh, traditions. And, and the attack is designed to undo the deeper moral structure of society. So the kinds of, of things I've just said about what the movies or sitcoms or other things that you might watch or look at, the kinds of emotions that that stir and, and appetites that that stirs up within you, this is what he's talking about. He says, death works make the old values look ridiculous. Old values like purity, like chastity, like modesty, like faithfulness. It looks ridiculous. That's, that's what the death works present. And then he, and then he goes on, that the death works represent not so much arguments against the old order as subversions of it. They aim at changing the aesthetic tastes and sympathies of society so as to undermine the commands on which that society was based. In other words, you, you go into the movie theater or you, you click onto YouTube or other things on the, on the internet and it's not so much that they're arguing directly against marriage 
as they are making it where you don't have an appetite for godly living and, and faithfulness and chastity. You don't desire those things. And Truman says this, perhaps the quintessential death work of our time and one that has really become far more widespread. He's, he's really dealing with this guy, Philip Reif. One that has become far more wi widespread since 2006 is pornography. And, and he, he, he quotes the, the definition of, of pornography provided by the Catechism of the Catholic Church, he, which says this, Pornography consists in removing real or simulated sexual acts from the intimacy of the partners in order to display them deliberately to third parties. It offends against chastity because it perverts the conjugal act, the intimate giving of spouses to each other. It does grave injury to the dignity of its participants, actors, vendors, the public, since each one becomes an object of base pleasure and illicit profit for others. It immerses all who are involved in the illusion of a fantasy world. It is a grave offense. Civil authorities should prevent the production and distribution of pornographic materials. That's the, that's the catechism of the Catholic Church on pornography. Truman then talks about how what pornography does as a death work is it takes human sexual activity and divorces it from any moral content. It also divorces it from any larger narrative or historical context. It, it, it removes the sacred significance that God designed human sexuality to have within the context of marriage. And, and it removes any personal history and, of course, it destroys any connection between what it's depicting and reproduction, which links past to future and is the necessary precondition for culture. And lastly, Truman observes that pornography destroys the link between marriage and marital intimacy and Christ and the church and the intimacy that this is supposed to depict between Christ and his people. So by repudiating the idea that sex has any significance beyond the act in itself, Truman is pointing out how this is a death work. It is subverting the foundations of culture. It's subverting the gospel as it impinges upon the way that, that the, all this is marriage and, and intimacy within marriage is designed to protect depict the relationship between Christ and the church. It also makes it where we have no appetite for a chapter like the one before us in Genesis 48. So if you want to destroy your appetite for the Bible, if you want to act like the most sacred things in life have no sacred significance, then go on indulging in that. But if you want to stand up, and if you want to live, if you want to live for God, then you ought, if you weren't here this morning, during Matt D'Amico's talk on self-control and you're a man, you need to get the audio of that and you need to make a plan. And you need to get some people involved with you in that plan and you need to say, no more am I participating in that death work. No more am I giving myself to that rot and ruin which will destroy your soul. Genesis 48. We're in this uh, Joseph narrative. And um, in the previous chapter, we saw the way that Joseph saved Egypt through the famine. And now in Genesis 48, we read, After this, Joseph was told, Behold, your father is ill. So he took with him his two sons, Manasseh and Ephraim. And note the order of the names that are presented to us there. Manasseh is the oldest, and he's presented first. And then Ephraim is the second born, and he's presented second. And Ephraim's name picks up on that fruitful and multiply language. You, you, could, you could say that Ephraim means something like doubly fruit, fruitful. Um, and, and what Joseph is evidencing here is a concern for his father, a godly devotion to his father that is affirming the past and being concerned about the future. That's what we've got here. We, we've got Joseph, who is the present ruler of Egypt, 
but he's going to show honor and deference to his father who represents the past. And he's going to bring his sons to his father for them to be blessed, which represents the future. And Israel, meanwhile, his father, um, Jacob, who's also going to be referred to as here as Israel, the name which the Lord gave him, summoned his strength and sat up in bed. And Jacob said to Joseph, it's interesting how they, uh, the author Moses here goes back and forth between the name Israel and Jacob. I think that he is both affirming the individual identity of the patriarch Jacob and suggesting that his audience should think about the nation that is going to come from this man, the nation of Israel. So Israel summoned his strength and sat up in bed, and Jacob said to Joseph, God Almighty appeared to me at Luz in the land of Canaan and blessed me. This is referring back to Genesis 28, when after having stolen the blessing from his brother Esau, as Jacob fled from Esau, he he laid down to sleep and he he saw the vision of that uh, ladder or stairway going into heaven, and then the angels of God were ascending and descending, and the Lord stood there, and the Lord blessed Jacob, and Jacob is now recounting that episode. He says, God appeared to me, And blessed me and said to me, behold, and here's this language again, I will make you fruitful and multiply you. And just to to elaborate a little bit more on what what I was saying a moment ago, you know, um, the way that God's program of salvation looks in the book of Genesis is kind of like the way it looks today. In the book of Genesis, if you think about this, God is dealing with this one family of Abraham. And and as I said, Abraham can't even have children. And then he he at last gets one child. And and you might look at it and you say, this is what the Lord is doing? This is God's program of salvation? This one family with this one kid? That's it? And then, you know, you, you keep reading. And eventually you've got... Joseph is lord of all Egypt, but then you've got Egypt, and, and you've got those great civilizations in the Middle East, and, and, and you might look at, at Joseph and his brothers and old man Jacob, and you might think again, this is it? This is God's program to save the world? These are the people that know the living God? And then we could look to today, couldn't we? And, and this is enormously encouraging to gather together. It's great to, to come into this room and... and There are all these wonderful, joyful, godly people singing praise to God. But if we were to sort of step back from this and look at the size of this gathering as compared to the population of Louisville or the state of Kentucky or the world, we might say, this is it? This is all God is doing in the world? And, And what's remarkable is that all through the scriptures, this is the way it is. And the Lord keeps delivering his people. And the Lord keeps making it so that his people are like that tree in Psalm 1 that's that's planted by streams of water and that's yielding its fruit in season and, and the leaf is not withering and the wicked are like chaff that the wind drives away. The Lord keeps doing that. And, and as we believe the scriptures and as we walk together, we'll see it true in our lives as well. So the Lord says, uh, the, Jacob is recounting how the Lord says to him, Behold, I will make you fruitful and multiply you, and I will make of you a company of peoples, and will give this land to your seed after you for an everlasting possession. And we've talked about this. God is, is going to give this land of Canaan to the people of Israel. But again, I would suggest that that land that's given to the seed of Jacob is intended to be like a beachhead. They are to establish God's reign in that land, and then they're to to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth from that land so so that the knowledge of God extends to all peoples. And in the same way that Adam fails and gets thrown out of the garden, Israel is going to fail and get thrown out of the land of Canaan, but Christ is going to come. Christ comes, and here's where we come in. Uh, Christ comes and says to his followers, go make disciples of all nations. And he says that what he's doing is he's building his church. And the church is is God's dwelling place by the Spirit. Not the building, but the people are the dwelling place of God by the Spirit. And what we're doing here at Kenwood is we're, we're trying to carry out this same commission that was given to Adam. We're trying to make it so that the glory of God covers the dry lands as the waters cover the seas. And we're trying to do that by being a faithful community here, by sending out faithful pastors into this culture and into other cultures 
who will plant churches like this one, who will uphold the value of marriage and family so that, so that the, the, the gospel can go to the coming generations and so that people will look on, on God's people who are loving one another and thriving and want to know the reason for the hope that we have and the joy that we have and the, the resilience in the face of affliction that we experience. So, so Jacob reiterates the promises that God made to him. Verse 5, Jacob says to Joseph, And now your two sons who were born to you in the land of Egypt before I came to you in Egypt are mine. And then watch what Jacob does with the names. He reverses them. Earlier we were told about, in verse 1, Manasseh and Ephraim, but it's as though Jacob knows what he's about to do, and he switches the names, and he says, Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. And then I don't know if what comes next uh, is, is something that Jacob fully understood, but I think that what's stated next is something that Moses fully understood. As Moses uh, writes up this passage and recounts these events, I'm confident that, that Moses understood how these things would play out. Uh, what I have in mind is, is the way that he, Moses presents Jacob saying, as Reuben and Simeon are mine, essentially, so Ephraim and Manasseh shall be mine. So what's going to happen in this passage is Jacob is going to bless Ephraim and Manasseh. He's going to give them the, the birthright and the blessing. But in the next chapter, in Genesis 49, Jacob is going to bless, bless Judah significantly. And, uh, we're, and, and, and he's going to say that the king is going to come from Judah. And, and later in the Bible, the author of Chronicles, in 1 Chronicles 5, 1 and 2, he's going to explain this. He says in 1 Chronicles 5, 1, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, and then he, he, he relates that Reuben was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph. And we can just observe here, Reuben failed to live out self-control. Reuben failed to live in a way that uh, exercised self-control, mastered his own desire to gratify himself sexually. And because of that, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he, Reuben, could not be enrolled as the oldest son. And then verse 2, though Judah became strong among his brothers and a chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So it's interesting, I think, that Jacob says that Ephraim and Manasseh will be his as Reuben and Simeon are. And here Jacob is trying to bless Ephraim and Manasseh but the blessing is really going to go to Judah. The, king is going, the, the line of descent is going to be traced through Judah. So it's almost as though in the same way that Reuben and Simeon are passed over, Ephraim and Manasseh will also be passed over, and the king will come from Judah. Verse 6, uh, Jacob continues saying to Joseph, And the children that you fathered after them, Ephraim and Manasseh, shall be yours. They shall be called by the name of their brothers in their inheritance. And then Jacob relates uh, concerning his beloved wife. He says, as for me, when I came from Paddan to my sorrow, Rachel died in the land of Canaan on the way, when there was still some distance to go to Ephrath. And I buried her there on the way to Ephrath, that is Bethlehem. And it's interesting that uh, these, these, these statements pertain to Bethlehem, which is going to wind up in the land of uh, Judah, and this will be uh, the city that is associated with, with David. So it's interesting that these statements would be made uh, right after this adoption of Ephraim and Manasseh. Verse 8, when Israel saw Joseph's sons, he said, who are these? Now, it's, you know, it's interesting that verse 9 says, when Israel saw Joseph's sons. Sorry, that's verse 8. Because in verse 10 we're going to read, now the eyes of Israel were dim with age so that he could not see. So I don't, I don't know if his eyesight is just so bad that he just sees shadowy shapes or if he's fully blind and perhaps he hears them come in. We, we, don't, we're not, we, don't, we don't know exactly how bad his eyesight was. But at some level, he sees them, but not enough to know who they are. So in verse 9, Joseph said to his father, They are my sons whom God has given me here. And he said, Bring them to me, please, that I may bless them. 
And then we read about his, his eyes being dim with age. And then in verse 10, so Joseph brought them near him and he kissed them and embraced them. And Israel said to Joseph, and again, this is interesting in light of the fact that we've just read that he's blind. I never expected to see your face. And behold, God has let me see your offspring also. So uh, Jacob is clearly rejoicing over his son Joseph being alive and over the opportunity to see Joseph's seed. And then Joseph removed them from his knees in verse 12 and he bowed himself with his face to the earth, the Lord of all Egypt, bowing to his father, honoring his father. Verse 13, and Joseph took them both, Ephraim in his right hand, toward Israel's left hand. And Manasseh in his left hand toward Israel's right hand. So again, Manasseh is the older. Joseph wants him to his father's right hand. And he brought them near him. And Israel stretched out his right hand and laid it on the head of Ephraim, who was the younger, and his left hand on the head of Manasseh, crossing his hands. For Manasseh was the firstborn. And he blessed Joseph and said, and this is, this is such a beautiful uh, restatement of the blessing of Abraham. And, and it communicates to us that, yes, Jacob sinned in many ways. He failed in many ways. And, and at many points, he was not trusting the Lord. But the, at the end of his life, he came to know the God who had, who had preserved him through it all. Here in verse 15, the God before whom my fathers, Abraham and Isaac, walked. That's a that's a, uh, an appropriate thing for him to say because when God called Abraham first to leave, it, it's as though he told him, walk. He gave that, that same verb is used to command Abraham to go. The God before whom my fathers Abraham and Isaac walked, the God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. Jacob himself had shepherded and he recounted how he had spent those long hot days and the cold nights with the flocks and he knew that, that shepherds were odious uh, in the nostrils of the Egyptians. And yet, he's happy to identify God as his shepherd. The God who has been my shepherd all my life long to this day. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil. I think, perhaps, he's, he's picking up on the way that throughout the book of Genesis, when God appears to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob... He actually manifests himself in the form of an angel. We, you, if you go back and look at those, those places where the Lord speaks directly to these figures, often there's an angel involved. The angel of the Lord is involved. The angel who has redeemed me from all evil, bless the boys. And in them let my name be carried on, and the name of my fathers, Abraham and Isaac. And let them grow into a multitude in the midst of the earth. So the, the, the blessing of of seed and land are both there. Let them grow into a multitude. That's going to be seed. In the midst of the earth, that's a reference to land. And then, of course, he said, bless the boys. So we have every aspect of the, the blessing of Abraham there. And then, just as we often have in, in our own experience, there's some family disharmony that enters the picture as well. Because Joseph is not entirely pleased with how this has played out. And, and so it's, it's, it's surprising, but here it is, when, verse 17, when Joseph saw that his father laid his right hand on the head of Ephraim, it displeased him. Literally, it was evil in his eyes. And he took his father's hand to move it. I mean, can you imagine this? His father's hands are there, and Joseph reaches out and grabs his hand and tries to remove it to the right place. And there's this little wrestling match between father and son. And Joseph said to his father in verse 18, Not this way, my father, since this one is the firstborn. Put your right hand on his head. But his father refused and said, I know, my son, I know. He also shall become a people, and he also shall be great. Nevertheless, his younger brother shall be greater than he, and his seed shall become a multitude of nations. So much of what happens here represents what happened between Jacob and Esau. Not only in the, the blessing of the younger over the older, and the older serving the, the younger in Jacob and Esau's case, 
But also, uh, Isaac too was blind, you remember? And this actually facilitated uh, Jacob's ability to deceive his father, the fact that Isaac couldn't see well. And so I, I think that probably Jacob has picked up on the way that, that God has consistently through the book of Genesis chosen to use the younger rather than the oldest son, which would have been controversial and uh, offensive in the ancient Near East, as it would in many places in our day today. And, and, and the God of the Bible is overturning cultural expectations. It's one more aspect of the way that the Lord chooses the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chooses the things that are not to bring to nothing the things that are. Verse 20, so he blessed them that day, saying, By you Israel will pronounce blessings, saying, God make you as Ephraim and as Manasseh. Thus, he put Ephraim before Manasseh. Then Israel said to Joseph, Behold, I am about to die, but God will be with you and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. So once again, we see that the hope of God's promise, the hope of the land of Canaan, has not been overwhelmed by all the glory of Egypt and all the luxury of Egypt that Jacob has been has been experiencing, and even though Canaan right now is a desert land under famine, it doesn't look like the Garden of Eden. Canaan doesn't. I think Jacob is, is believing God promised us that land. God is going to accomplish his purposes through our offspring in that land, and that's where Jacob is putting his future hope, even as he dies, which again points to a hope that, that extends beyond death. God will be with you at the end of verse 21 and will bring you again to the land of your fathers. Moreover, verse 22, I have given to you rather than to your brothers one mountain slope that I took from the hand of the Amorites with my sword and with my bow. Earlier uh, in the service, we read from Joshua 24, uh, which, which referenced the way that Joseph was, was buried probably in this place where uh, this, this piece of ground that Jacob had given to him. Well, let me say a few things about how the, the, the marriage and family emphasis in the book of Genesis through which salvation is, is accomplished as the line of descent is pre preserved. Let me say a few words about how I think this is extended even into the new covenant situation that we now occupy. And the reason I'm saying this is because I, I, want, I want us all to embrace this idea that, uh, that God wants us, he wants his people to marry. And God wants his people to be fruitful and multiply and communicate the gospel to the rising generation. Now, not everyone marries. Uh, there are exceptions. Jesus speaks in Matthew 19, 11 about to some it is given not to marry. And, and they are uh, devoted to the kingdom of God, the, these people to whom it is given not to marry. But the, the general pattern, the normal expectation is that uh, humanity will be perpetuated as people marry and procreate and the faith will be passed to them. And I would urge you all to see how, yes, the Great Commission task can be pursued as you build a faithful and, and exemplary marriage and as you pass the faith to your children. And I would encourage you, as, as perhaps you, you try to evangelize people, recognize the way that so much of what someone needs to have in place to believe the gospel, as parents, you're in position to build those things into the thinking of the children that God has entrusted to you. So Ephesians 6, 1 and following. Children, obey your parents in the Lord. Paul is assuming that most of the people that he's addressing... The normal pattern for the people that he's addressing in the church in Ephesus is that they'll be married and that these children will have parents. Honor your father and mother. He reiterates that, that command from the Ten Commandments. This is the first commandment with a promise, that it may go well with you and that you may live long in the land. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. And then as we saw uh, Joseph honoring his aged father, in 1 Timothy chapter 5, 
Paul writes in verse 4, If a widow has children or grandchildren, let them first learn to show godliness to their own household and to make some return for their parents, return to their parents, for this is pleasing in the sight of God. So Paul is commending children caring for their parents and grandparents. And then he says in verse 6, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for the members of his household, he is denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. So, so this is central to us living out our faith, for us caring for our family. Uh, Titus 2, which I believe was discussed uh, both with the men this morning and with the women. Listen to these words. And, and before I read these words, uh, I suspect that since the Rise and Fall of the Mon Mars Hill podcast is like the number four podcast on the ratings list. I suspect that many of you are listening to it. And so I suspect that you've heard uh, a, a pastor who uh, had some excessive and was wrong in some excessive ways. And yet there are things in the Bible that he taught. And, and I think that that podcast is throwing the baby out with the bathwater at a number of points. And at points, that podcast is trashing things that the Bible teaches. You listen for it as I read these words from the Bible, which I would point out as you listen to that podcast, the dog that's not barking, the glaring absence in the podcast is anything that the Bible says. Titus 2, verse 3. Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. You know, you, you listen to that podcast and you think that some of those things are abusive. You read the Apostle Paul and you hear him commanding these things, encouraging. It doesn't mean this is the only thing that women need to do, but they need to do these things. Um, and then... Hebrews 13, the author of Hebrews writes in Hebrews 13, 4, let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexual, sexually immoral and adulterous. We can't let the death work defile the marriage bed in our thinking. Um, if you say to me, what about Luke 14, 26, where Jesus says, if anyone doesn't hate his father, or mother, or sister, or brother, come after me, I would say in response, I think that that's one of those we must obey God rather than men situations. Where if, you're, if your family, your, your immediate family members, even your wife, or your husband, or your parents, if they're opposed to the gospel, and they're telling you not to follow Jesus, that's where you separate from them. That's where you say, I'm going to obey God, not men. I think that's how that statement applies. And if you say to me, well, Paul wanted people to be single, um, I would just point you to my brother Denny Burke's uh, blog post. You know, you can just Google. If you want to look this up, you can Google DennyBurke.com and then was Paul single? And he presents, I think, a cogent argument that Paul was likely married and, and either his wife left him when he believed the gospel or perhaps she died or we don't know what happened. But it doesn't, it doesn't indicate that he was never married. So, I know I'm over time. I apologize to you. Uh, I, would, I, would, I would say that one of the best ways that we can pursue the Great Commission is through marriage and family, by raising godly children, by imparting the, the gospel to our children. Yes, we need, yeah, and we will. Listen, we will soon. I, I, don't, I don't think it'll be very long before we're out on these streets knocking on these doors again. And, and we will be urging you to build relationships with your neighbors and to invite them to your home for a meal and, and to seek for ways to communicate the gospel to them. We will be emphasizing and pushing those things. But I'm also going to say right now that there are far too few of our members actively involved in children's church and in nursery. So if, if you're a member and you've been here longer than six months and you're not actively seeking to communicate the gospel to the kids among us, shame on you. Shame on you. You, you ought to be eager to have the opportunity to help these parents build in gospel categories into the imaginations of these kids. 
and, and communicate the faith to these young people that are the, I think, the most significant and most precious resource that we have. If you influence these folks that are live in person in children's church on Sunday morning or Wednesday night or in the nursery, that's going to be an influence that's going gonna, gonna to go farther than any tweet you could send out, probably than any blog post you could ever write, certainly than any Facebook post. If you want influence, as J.O. often says, change the world. Serve in the nursery. And then lastly, I would say, you know, there are so many of these, so many of these uh, really cool, hip people uh, in our culture. Um, they're all about trying to build culture. You want to build culture? Get married and have some kids. You want to build culture? Raise up godly offspring. People that are going to stand against the tide of the decadence and perversion out there. That's how, you want to build culture? A podcast is probably not going to be the way to do it. An art form. I mean, you may, you may move the needle a little bit, but you want to build culture? Have a great marriage. Raise some godly kids. That's the way to do it. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this passage. We praise you for preserving that line of descent through so many difficulties and twists and turns. And Lord, we praise you that even when Abraham and Isaac had their wives seized and taken from them, you were faithful to those patriarchs. Even when Sarah and, and Rebecca and Rachel, we read of all three of them that they were barren. Lord, you, by your miraculous power, gave life from the dead on those occasions. And Lord, we praise you for our parents, for the fact that they gave us life. Many of us, Lord, in this room were born after the time when it was legal in this country to, to have babies legally aborted. So we praise you that our parents did not do that. And Lord, I praise you for the many marriages here, for the many children here. And I pray that you would bless and prosper these families. I pray that these men would experience Psalm 128. Thus shall the man be blessed who fears the Lord. That his children would be like olive shoots around his table. That his wife would be a fruitful vine. That he would eat the fruit of the labor of his hands. Lord, do good to your people, we pray. And cause us to experience these blessings. Lord, help us to communicate the faith to the children of Kenwood. Make it, Lord, so that there is not a departure from the faith when they go off from us to college or to their own lives. We look to you to do the miracle of regeneration in their hearts. And Lord, I pray that you would help us all to see that your kingdom is the pearl of great price. Your kingdom is the treasure hidden in the field. And make us people who are ready to sell everything to buy the kingdom. Lord, make us live for you, we pray. Keep us from the death works. Keep us from ruining our lives. Help us to celebrate the glorious and sacred things that you and your goodness have lavished upon us. Lord, we love you and thank you for all these things. In Christ's name, amen.